You are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today, we have with us in the studio, Zach Funk. Zach is a comedian, storyteller, and writer from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Trigger warning, today's episode will discuss suicide. We'll be right back with Zach, but first, let's talk about spontaneous. The true opposite of depression is not gaiety or absence of pain, but vitality, the freedom to experience spontaneous feelings. Alice Miller I've been thinking a lot the past week about being spontaneous. What happened to me in the pits and depths of my depression is I lost the will and the, I guess, vitality to experience not just spontaneous feelings, but a spontaneous life, going out in the world, having fun with friends, just showing up at something and seeing what happened. I felt most safe at home, in bed, under the covers. As my depression has lifted and I've been feeling much more carefree and happy, and my life is filled with a lot more ease these days, And thank you to all of you listening. This whole show and listening to people's stories has helped me immensely, and I hope it helps you as well. But I find that it's hard for me to break from that safe routine that I've gotten into of going to work, coming home, see my boyfriend, go to work, come home. I just don't feel like just going out and seeing what happens with my day and being carefree. Everything's planned. Everything's organized. I feel structured and strictured, partly because I work a lot of hours and the little bit of time I have left, I want to make sure that I spend it with a loved one or a friend or just come home and be quiet and exhausted and go to sleep. But the absence of spontaneous experiences in my life is weighing me down a I want to feel carefree again, and I haven't figured out yet how to make that happen in my very structured, busy life. How do I have spontaneous experiences but still go to the gym every day and go to work and see the people that I'm close to and make plans with them so that we can actually spend time together? How do I work spontaneous experiences back into my life? It's a struggle, and I haven't figured it out yet. I'll just end with another Alice Miller quote. It was not the beautiful or pleasant feelings that gave me new insight, but the ones against which I fought most strongly, feelings that made me experience myself as shabby, petty, mean, helpless, humiliated, demanding, resentful, or confused, and above all, sad and lonely. It was precisely through these experiences, which I had shunned for so long, that I became certain that I now understood something about my life, stemming from the core of my being, something I could not have learned from any book. Alice Miller. I find that to be so true. I think depression, horrible as it is, is also a gift. And to counterbalance that, I want to have experiences of spontaneous fun while still respecting the place and the gifts that depression has given me.
Today we have with us in the studio, Zach Funk. Zach is a comedian, storyteller, and writer from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hello, Zach. Welcome to the Depression Session. Hey, great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so what's new with you? What do you want to share with our audience? So next weekend from when we're taping this, the first person I ever talked out of suicide is getting married. So that's just kind of cool on a personal level. Yeah. Now that ties in with all the depression-y stuff, too. Other than that, I'm doing as much comedy as I can, which is not as much as I'd like it to be, just because I'm not anywhere close to the level where that can pay my bills. And so, you know, day job, rent, all that fun stuff. I write where I can. I've recently started doing a, a YouTube-based video game. Well, starting a video game, might do some other stuff, too. Uh, review show with uh, my friend Joe Kiera from college. Uh, it's called Is It Worth a Sandwich? <laughs> where we take video games and ask, look at the price and say, okay, if I bought this game or bought a sandwich at this general price, which is the better choice? Because that was our general scaling system when we were broke college students. You know, ah, I bought this thing for five bucks. How was it? I could have had a chicken sandwich. <laughs> cool. Uh, what do you do as far as writing? What's your interest in writing? There is, I mean, a lot of my, other than just writing stand-up kind of stuff, and for my stand-up and storytelling, I'll write some joke jokes, but a lot of it more is just kind of talking about the things going on in my life. For my day job, I work in paint and blinds at a hardware store, because that's what happens when you drop out of being an English major. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and one of the things I do is I don't have one every single day, but anytime I have particularly noteworthy customer experiences, I actually document those as what I would call customer interaction of the day. So sometimes they're amusing, sometimes they're frustrating, and I'm kind of going back now because I've been I've been there for almost five years. So I've been doing these for a long time, so I'm going back and collecting those into a volume. Other than that, I I like to write short stories. I've written some comic book type things. I can't draw at all. My stick figures have scoliosis, but I really like comics as a medium, so I enjoy writing in that kind of format as well. A lot of my college friends are film students, so if people have script things they're working on, I often will help kind of, you know, help with dialogue or things like that. Do you have a favorite amusing customer story you can share? Oh, I have I have so many. <laughs> uh, What's a favorite one? One of the things that's nice about my job is that being the intelligent guy at the hardware store means you can say a lot of things without getting in trouble because people don't know what you're really telling them. I had a woman came to the paint desk the one day. And uh, she had a brown color swatch in her hand, and she said, please be honest with me, does this look like poop? (laughs) (laughs) And because she asked me to be honest, I gave her the most honest answer I could, which was, that depends on your diet. Or I've had things where people get upset at me because I I once had someone ask me for reddish-blue paint. And when I said, oh, so you'd like a purple, she then insisted, no, no, she did not want purple, she wanted reddish-blue. (laughs) <laughs> I'm an art teacher, so I'm like, oh, no, no. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I, I turned to like them. They're like, there's purple with more red, there's purple with more blue, but reddish blue is not a thing. It's purple. <laughs> yeah, you're asking me for hot ice at this point. <laughs> so awesome. things like that. Whenever I write them out, I really try to make them a little more dramatic, dramatic and have a bit more flair to it. Some stories I'll do on – some of my work stories also do on stage – I try not to do too much work stuff on stage, though, because there's a fine line between being I'm Zach and I sell paint for a living and being Zach the paint guy. Right, right. I don't want to fall into that niche thing. (laughs) Great. So, Zach, tell us the story of your depression. All right. Well, I think in a weird way, 
it's comforting that I can remember having problems with depression as early as second or third grade because I'm 31 now. And so things don't catch me off guard. I'm used to it. When, when, you, when you're now on the other hand, you know, there's nothing like an elementary school kid having an existential crisis trying to justify their own existence. Now, I can't color in the line, you know, forget that. I'm not sure whether I should exist or not. <laughs> it gets to be a thing. I was always the weird, overly intellectual child. My parents uh, told me at one point that they their friends would jokingly refer to them, refer to me not so much as their kid, but the little person who moved in with them. <laughs> I got I would get up with equal excitement on Saturday mornings to watch cartoons as I didn't meet the press on Sunday. That was just it's kind of how I was. And so you'd have some little kids who were scared because like oh there's a monster in the closet or things like that. I didn't have that issue. I would think, like, okay, I read this science book that said one day the sun is going to go supernova and destroy the Earth, and so if the planet's not going to be here, then I'm definitely not going to be here. And what's that going to matter? And if everything's going to get wiped out, what's the point? And when you're in college and you have that question, they give you a class. <laughs> when, when you're seven and have that question, you just kind of get looked at weird. So I remember, though, I would, I would have anxiety problems and depression problems. It's, it's more depression than anxiety, though the two kind of feed into each other very much. And one of the things that I can really remember uh, is that when I would get – when I would have those issues, uh, I would talk to my dad a lot. My dad was a very funny, creative person as well. He was an attorney, though he wanted to be a writer. But I have mental health problems on both sides of my family. I don't know all the exact diagnosis everyone has. I know I'm the most open about it because I get on stage and talk about it. I'm here talking about it because to me, it's just it's just a part of me. You know, I, I wear glasses because my eyes don't work right. I take a pill because my brain doesn't work right all the time. And then one day when I was in fifth grade, my dad died in a random car accident. Uh, they don't really know why or, or what happened exactly. He was driving from the courthouse back to his office. And his car just drifted into the other lane and hit a truck head on. In a weird way, it's comforting knowing I had my mental health problems before that. So that wasn't strictly a trigger. It definitely made things worse, don't get me wrong. But looking back on it as an adult, in a weird way, I'm comforted knowing that this wasn't something that happened because one thing happened. It was probably an issue I was going to have regardless. Uh, now, the thing that really complicated that, too, was because... As far as I can remember, dad was really the person who was able to talk me down whenever I got really bad. Uh, and so not having that around just made things so much worse. My mom, my mom would talk to me about things too. She and I have a really great relationship. Uh, I have a younger sister. Uh, I was in fifth grade when dad died. She was in first grade. And so because I, I dealt with that kind of thing from such a young age, in a weird way, it also prepared me for as I got older. Because I can remember... Even before dad died, like I said, having serious depressive thoughts, self-harming thoughts, suicidal thoughts. And so once I got into middle school and high school, when it's more normal for those kind of things to happen, as I would meet friends and make friends that ended up having mental health problems, I was like, oh, you just started thinking this? Well, I've got six years experience. Let's sit down. Let's talk about this. I very quickly became the therapist friend for a lot of my friends. I talked my first person out of suicide in 10th grade, like going to his house at 2 in the morning to make sure he didn't slit his wrists and actually take him to the hospital. The three of us that went over to his house, it was uh, another good friend of mine, 
and that friend's dad, who was a pastor. So the three of us show up at the house, and even though we had an adult there who was trained in counseling people, that's his job, I was the one that did most of the talking. And he, had, uh, he, the pastor, had later told her mom that he thought God was working through me that night. I'm more of a secular person, so I took, I took the compliment regardless. But it was just, it was kind of weird being, still being the kid in that situation, but having to take the adult role. I graduated from high school in 2003, and I went to Point Park University in Pittsburgh. I'm originally from a town called Ephrata in Lancaster County, which is about uh, central Pennsylvania, a little bit of east central. And I went for journalism because I worked in a high school newspaper and I, I like to write. And I thought, well, journalism is a way I can try to write and pay the bills. But the problem was I never really cared about any programs I was in. And I'm someone who I am – I always feel pompous when I say this, but I know I'm intelligent. But if I don't care about a subject, I just can't get invested in it because there's all these other things I could be learning or could be doing or could be experiencing. And so if I don't – if I don't care about a class, I don't get good grades. And some of that's also the depression and anxiety because then if it's something I care about, I can fight the depression and say, no, no, this is important. You care about this and you want to do this. But if I'm if I'm taking a class where it's, hey, you're going to write the same paper people have been writing for 100 years now about a poet from you know, the 1600s, it just doesn't motivate me. And so I left the journalism major the first time I was in college. I was there for four years. I changed majors three times. My depression kept getting worse and worse. And I also have a lot of insomnia problems, which I also then ties in with the depression and the anxiety. And I started taking antidepressants when I was in middle school. I took them all through the first time in college. And when I was in college, my doctor also gave me a script for Ambien. Uh, because I was just having so much trouble sleeping between stress of school and being on my own for the first time and things like that. And when I started taking Ambien, I could take half a pill and in 15, 20 minutes be uh, – close to can describe as being really drunk. Uh, I didn't drink until I was 23. I think had I drank back then, I probably wouldn't be here because I would have ended up drinking and taking pills at the same time. And another 10 minutes after that. I'd just be out cold for 8 to 10 hours, if not more, which as a depressive insomniac was amazing to, to be able to decide just I'm just going to shut down and, and escape. And hey, if I'm asleep, I'm not having a panic attack or I'm not thinking these horrible things. 30 pills would last me a few months because I wasn't taking it very often. But then as things got worse, my mental health got worse, my classes got worse, my grades got worse, I was taking them more and more until I hit a point where I could take an entire pill and not fall asleep. I would get pretty messed up, but I wouldn't fall asleep. And so I talked to my doctor about it. I wasn't as honest as I could have been about how frequently I was taking it because he had that special level of denial. And he said, well, if you need, you can take one and a half maybe. So I would take one and a half, and then eventually one and a half didn't do it. And uh, anytime I took more than one, I always tried to space it out because no matter how depressive or emotional again i still have this logical you know overlay intellectual core it's like i'm taking one and a half now if i'm still awake in another hour i'll take another half a pill and so on and then the one night uh i it was in my last year i was at college my timeline for that is kind of fuzzy just because i spent so much time either depressed or asleep that everything kind of blurs together i i think i took about three to one night I didn't necessarily want to die, but I remember thinking, I know this could kill me. I didn't really want it to, but I was okay if it did. 
That's why I tell people I kind of tried to kill myself. It wasn't I want this to do it. It was just the if it does, it does. I don't even care anymore. And I kind of passed out in bed, woke up not too much longer after, I think. And I ran to the bathroom and I threw up like black crayon black, both the color and a little bit of the consistency. And because I was living by myself at the time, and I was so depressed and high on sleeping pills effectively, I didn't even think to like tell anyone or acknowledge anything, so I just stumbled back to bed. I woke up a few. I woke up about six, eight hours later, and I could taste in my mouth. I knew I'd thrown up, but I hit this again. That special denial kicks in, where you think, "No, there's no way I could have thrown up black." I heard stories of people hallucinating from Ambien. I'd never had that, but suddenly I thought I probably just hallucinated. So I go into the bathroom, and I remembered getting everything in the toilet. I did not get everything in the toilet. <laughs> it looked like somebody had taken a can of black spray paint to the bathroom. It was not pleasant. Uh, black, if, you're, if you're throwing up black, uh, that means you're bleeding internally. So just a, a fun tip for all you kids at home with that. And then that it was not too long after that I left school for the first time. When I started college, I, I applied to be an RA. That's one of the reasons I have my own room because I have spent so much time helping people and consulting people. Uh, and through the interview process, they said, what are you most proud of in life? And I know people in my RA, my housing staff were like former Miss Teen, Delaware, Valedictorians, all kinds of things. And the answer I just gave them was, I'm glad to be here. That's about it because I have these mental health problems and there's so many ways life can go wrong. So I'm just, I'm glad to be here. So after college, I moved to Pittsburgh full time. I got a job working at a group home and just kind of did that for four years until I started doing stand-up comedy, which is something I've always loved, but I never tried. And then I found out at an open mic and I tried that and I've been doing that almost five and a half years now. And that's been a really great outlet creatively and emotionally because I talk about mental health on stage. I talk about my own mental health. I talk about the stigma surrounding it, which also makes things interesting. Uh, often when you're a comedian, the first, when someone finds out you're a comedian, people say, tell me a joke. Just like when, if someone finds out you're a singer, they demand you sing a song. That's what happens. <laughs> and so one of the jokes I most often will tell when someone says, tell me a joke is one of my depression jokes because it's a very short joke. There's not a lot of buildup. It's just uh, basically I haven't been feeling too well lately. Uh, I went to see the doctor. He has put me on the no more tear shampoo, which is somehow not helping. And it kind of <laughs> goes on from there. And so when I had a situation once where I told someone that joke just in the tell me a joke context, as soon as I said I have depression, they actually took a step backwards. I don't think they were even consciously aware of it. I think it was just like a reflex and I, I didn't call them on it. I just kind of laughed about it and told people about it later. But I think that really shows how much of a stigma any kind of mental health thing can be. I think people don't understand it because if you have a cold, okay, everybody's had a cold. Or if you know somebody that, that gets cancer, we understand what cancer is. We understand what like normal illness is. But when you have any kind of illness that also affects your personality, for lack of a better phrase, it's something where People don't understand the difference between being depressed and being sad or, or being angry. Um, uh, there was someone I, I once knew who often insisted he had depression. Like, no, you, you, I don't think you have depression. I think, I think you don't – I think you have emotional issues, but it's not depression. 
because you you believe the world has wronged you. To me, that comes off as more of an angry thing. Every depressed person I know doesn't think the world has wronged them. They know they are the problem. At least that's from my own experience. Uh, is that depression is much more of an internalized thing. Is that, you know, you might see other things, but you don't blame those other things. It is still on you. You are the one responsible for your current state. As of right now, I've I've talked about five people out of suicide. I have helped other people. Uh, when I was an RA, there was a freshman girl moving onto my floor. I was helping her move a box. And I noticed uh, on her leg, it looked like she'd been cutting herself. And there's no good way to accuse someone of that, especially when you've just met them and you're their RA. And so I had said, I just point, kind of pointed in that general direction of her leg. And I said, oh, do you have a cat? Because I figured that's a way to see how she responds to that. And if she doesn't want to acknowledge it, she doesn't have to, but I'm letting her know that I know. And she ended up being really open and honest about it. And I think we talked for three hours that night, just about different doctors we've seen and medications we've tried and the whole mental health fight. And that's kind of where I am today. You know, I, I eventually went back to school and dropped out again because my mental health got really bad. I didn't try to hurt myself or anything this time, so that's a plus. But I could feel myself kind of going down those self-destructive paths again. So that's just kind of how I ended up there. But I think the biggest thing I can think is if you're if you're somebody who deals with depression, as I am, or you may know someone, uh, impermanence is something that really bothers me. The, the idea of things not lasting, that we're all going to die, nothing maybe is going to last. But in a sense, that's where I found some of my greatest comfort, too. Because when I get really depressed, when I have one of my brain just turns on me, the thing I try to remind myself is now is not forever. This is not permanent. Yes, I feel this way right now, but I have not always felt this way, and I will not always feel this way. I'm not necessarily going to feel better. I'm not necessarily going to feel worse, but it's going to change. I'm not optimistic enough to ever tell anyone it's going to get better, but it's going to change. And if you give it enough time, that change is going to be drastic enough one way or another that you'll still recognize where you were in that depressed state, but it's going to be different enough. And because you're still here, you're still learning from it and you still have potential. And that's about it, really. Wow. Dax, thanks so much for your story. Uh, there's a bunch of things in there that I, I want to talk about. One is anxiety and depression, which mm -hmm. is on my mind this week in general. I have a meetup group called the Depression Session Meetup Tucson, and our next topic is anxiety and depression. Here come the holidays. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and it, it seems at our last group, we were talking about like how closely linked those seem to be. And one of the women said, is there anybody who has depression and doesn't have anxiety? <laughs> and, and it's like, you know, because if you're depressed, you feel anxious about being depressed. And if you're anxious, you feel depressed about being anxious. <laughs> yeah, they, they very much snowball into each other. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think, you know, I, I think for me, it's more the depression than the anxiety, though, because I will definitely have times where I'm, I'm not anxious, but I am massively depressed. Yeah. But I don't think I'm ever anxious without being depressed. I've read something that like 80% of people who are depressed also have anxiety. So it is a pretty common theme. Yeah. When you have depression, you have anxiety. And if, if you're an intelligent person, you kind of get a certain level of hyper self-awareness, for lack of a better phrase. And so you'll start thinking, okay, is this depression? Is this anxiety? Which is it? Is it this? Is it this? And then that just kind of adds to it even more. And then on my own level, and sometimes that's nice though, where like whenever I start to get depressed, 
part of my brain kicks in and just goes, okay, are you depressed because something is happening or is this just some nasty chemicals in your head right now? And that kind of helps keep a focus on things too. Yeah. If I could figure out I'm depressed because I had a bad show the other day or you know, work was rough and I, or, or things like that, that, that helps because then you can point it at something at least and you can address it and think about it versus just the existential oh my life is going nowhere crisis yeah (laughs) will happen sometimes that brings up something else i wanted to mention which is just this problem of being smart yeah (laughs) and how many people i know in my family and in the world that 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 is not some kind of great blessing the the overactive and engaged brain I don't know. I don't know how that, where that fits into things, but it seems like so many people I know who struggle with depression also are the kind of person who would say, yeah, I couldn't get engaged with that class because it just wasn't very interesting and I can't make myself be interested in it. Yeah. And, and, or if I just didn't feel challenged, I had a class, uh, the first time I was in college when I was an English major, I had a class at one point entirely devoted to Shakespeare taught by a teacher who had a doctorate in Shakespeare, like your classic Tweedy English professor type. And we hit a point where we're talking about Romeo and Juliet, and I'm, I'm not anti-romance. I own things you could call chick flicks, and I just I can't stand Romeo and Juliet because they're middle school kids, and the story takes place in a day. So I don't see a lot of romance in two middle school kids lusting after each other for a day than ending up dead. Mm-hmm. And my Tweety professor English teacher was arguing it as a romance, and so we got into a not like yelling argument, but like I, I like intellectual argument. That's my thing. And so we started having this back and forth about whether the story is romantic at all. And I had said to the class, you know, call me crazy, but I like to take things slow and, you know, be alive. Then have a crazy day of passion in middle school and be dead. <laughs> and my teacher, my teacher re- replied with, well, yes, but at least then they're together forever in the afterlife and no one's keeping them apart. And I said, like, fine, let's run with that idea. Based on when and where the story takes place, Romeo and Juliet would have been Catholic, which means they're in hell. Because in Catholicism, you commit suicide, you go to hell. And my teacher, with a doctorate, had never thought of that. <laughs> and so that, like, I can pinpoint that the exact moment I just completely checked out of that class. Yeah. Where I just, okay, I, I don't care about this class anymore. I'm holding my own with my teacher in, like, stupid little debates in class. Can I just have my grade and go? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite stories, both to tell on and off stage, is... In 10th grade, I kind of broke my social studies teacher in in a good way. Uh, We had a project where we each group was an OPEC nation, and we had to have like a mock UN kind of thing, so the OPEC nations. Uh, This was the 2000 to 2001 school year, so the September 11th stacks hadn't happened yet, all that kind of thing. And I and my two friends were Iraq. And our goals for for the mock OPEC thing were to be completely forgiven for every Gulf War debt, get, get complete membership back into OPEC, and be like, you know what's awesome? The Koran. So we can get maybe one of those three things done. And because the teacher had really pushed the idea, remember, in this project, you are not Americans, you are your country. We took that as permission to cheat because we were Iraq. <laughs> uh, I had done a report early in the year on Iraq, so we had all of our information ready. So we just went around like spying other groups in the library and making deals with people. And we got every, we won as Iraq. 
at the end of the project, the teacher started yelling at the class that Iraq is not supposed to win. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the true nature of politics. <laughs> yeah, <certainly. laughs> well, Zach, thanks so much for being on the depression session and sharing your story. And oh, it's I, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. And good luck and uh, break a leg. Thank you. Yeah. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septa Helix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you.